You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today you'll be hearing from Scott Schuler, a member of our teaching team, as he continues our series called The Master. As we continue with the, pro- uh, the series on uh, Jesus as the Master, it becomes apparent as we go week after week that we're dealing with a process that we're involved in. Um, some people like me, love the process, they love the journey. I don't, this is the first time I've ever mentioned the Lord of the Rings in a sermon, and I know some people that I have a common history with that bolt upright when they hear that, because uh, there are, the Lord of the Rings has become a pretty popular uh, sermon illustration in places, but the one, I, I remember so little about it, frankly, but one is that the main characters, which are called hobbits, love to travel. They love to get on the road. They love to walk. They sing about the journey itself. I hate journeys. I like arriving. I don't like processes. I like finality. I don't like the process. I like to see the conclusion. When my kitchen is being worked on, I want to go on a two-week vacation and come home and see it finished. I don't want, to, I don't want phone calls about what they found when they pulled up the plumbing. I don't want to find out what happens about the wiring. I just want it to be done. I don't enjoy processes whatsoever, and it has brought me face-to-face with a God who was a god of processes. I was saved in an instant, but a long process started right after that. And sometimes it just gets so laborious because the main process that I'm going through is, rightly or wrongly, is trying to figure God out. Why does it seem that he behaves certain ways at certain times and certain circumstances, and when I call on him again later on, he just seems to behave so differently? What is he up to that I can't predict. What is, he, what is it about him that allows him to surprise me practically all of the time, and yet the next time that I come face-to-face with a um, uh, time to work with him, I'm not interested in another surprise. I, uh, as many times as I've seen him do wonderful things, I want him to do something predictable and answer a prayer in my way. We see Jesus this time in a, in a story we're all familiar with. This is one of a handful of stories that I can remember from, from uh, Sunday school there's a couple of stories about Sunday school the children seem to really like. They like Noah's Ark. They like David and Goliath. There's a couple others. The, the idea of, of the feeding the 5,000 is something that, it feeds the, that appeals to children, too. Primarily, can you think about which part of that story that the, in Sunday school they emphasize the little children? It's the little boy. We have a part in this. Somebody our age saved the day. We think we saved the day because somebody our age brought a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish Obviously, that's not true, but it's a nice childish thought, and they would play that up. And Jesus used this as an opportunity to bring us face-to-face again with who is he and who defines him, who decides who he is, whose definition matters, whose identification, who is free to tell him what his attributes are, and at what point do we start to listen. There's a number of, of pictures up here that show Jesus being very different from one another. All of us have, at some time or another, of some part of the, the Jesus story that we just, when, the, when we first think of Jesus, we think of him. There's a picture, I didn't put it up here, because frankly, I have a, I, when I see it, I get sort of a lump in my throat. And it's a picture of Jesus welcoming a man into heaven with a big hug. Have you ever seen that picture? It's just Jesus and the man. And Jesus is so, always, you see the back of the man, but you see Jesus' face over the man's shoulders. He's hugging him, and Jesus is so glad to see him. Welcome. Your troubles are over. You're home. 
You're safe. You're free. You're in my care. Nothing can touch you now. You don't have to watch your back. You don't have to look over your shoulder. Here you are. I've also pictured Jesus swinging the whips and driving the money changers out of the, out of the temple. Because of his anger about what they were doing to his father's house, the disrespect that they were showing, and also one of the things that doesn't often come out of that story is the reason what they were doing, the money changers, they were cheating the poor. If you remember that, they were selling um, pigeons, uh, little birds, which uh, the very, very poorest people in Hebrew culture, that was their sacrifice. That's all they could afford. Even Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny. But here they, they, were, he, they were cheating the poor by selling them and making uh, money off of these uh, sacrifices at the temple. I picture Jesus saying, uh, whoever does not hate mother, father, sister, brother, that's scripture, which is hard sometimes to, to deal with. I, I think I know what it means. It means that if Jesus calls you away from your family, you go, that, you, that he takes precedence over you. But it's a, hard, it's a hard scripture. And In fact, there were times that people said, these are hard lessons, Jesus. Who can listen to these? I came not to bring peace but a sword. These kinds of things. Also, uh, those who love me will keep my commandments. The scripture today is from John 6, as is my particular preference. Uh, Can we read this aloud together? Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside, and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, They began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus came for a number of different purposes, but he came to fill a a number of needs that we have, of course, not the least of which is to understand what the kingdom of God is all about. And he is showing us here something of the nature and the character of the kingdom of God and the nature of the God whose kingdom it is. There was an immediate need 
and there were no obvious alternatives to it. 5,000 people out on a hillside, 5,000 men plus the women and children, out on a hillside hungry. There's only so many solutions to hunger. The disciples' expectations were based on their human experience. Like all of us, we rely upon our experience a lot. One of the things that happens when we are trying to understand who God is, when we confront God another time, is we say, what has he done for me in the past? This is a a surefire way to sort of paint ourselves into a corner and begin to limit God, because God is not limited by the things he has done in our past. But this is what we hang on to nonetheless. I've never seen this before, and while I've heard about it, while I think God can do anything, I nevertheless have some expectation that his answer is going to be something some variant of something I've seen before. Based on human experience, what are you going to do with five, lo- five loaves of bread and just a couple of fish and 5,000 hungry people? The disciples' reaction, of course, was one of, co- of confusion and disbelief. What are we going to do with so little? There, what is so little among so many? Do we find just the neediest people in the crowd and fill them? That's what I would have thought. Find the really poorest, the most pathetic person you can find. Three or four of them, whatever many you can feed with five barley loaves and a couple of fish. Feed them and tell the rest, fast. Tomorrow you can eat. The fast starts now. Maybe just convince Jesus it's hopeless and send them away. You're never going to keep these people occupied. They're never going to want to sit still and listen to you if their, if their stomachs are rumbling. Sermon's over. Send them home. Something practical. Think about the practical applications. These are the things that we think about oftentimes when we're dealing with God. What is a practical answer to the things that I'm searching for? When we exhaust all of our practical responses, we turn to God and start asking him, what is your idea? Jesus' expectation was, of course, he knew what he was going to do all along. Of course, he also technically, I mean, he knew what he was going to do all along when Noah was still building his ark. But he knew what he was going to do all along. Because our Jesus, our God, is never caught off guard. Nobody ever really knows what another person is thinking and what another person is like. I oftentimes, one of my, I think it's one of my faults or my flaws, or it might be just one of, just an element of human nature. I tend to think that my experiences are common to everybody. And I find out oftentimes, I've, I've, I've found this out the hard way in a couple sermons in my past when I thought that and found out that not anybody had any idea what I was talking about. I had no, um, nothing in common. And, of course, if, when you find that out three minutes into a sermon, that's a terrible feeling. Because everything else that you're going to say you know is going to fall on deaf ears. They don't have any way of knowing what the, your motivations are. But when I go to the Lord in prayer, for some reason... I always think that my problem is unique and that he has not confronted it for, before in the history of humankind, that my problem is special, that my problem takes special attention, that because it's so special and because I feel it so badly, my priority ought to float right to the top of the list. Jesus, get started. I need you right away, and I'm going to need all of your energy and all of your attention because this problem is so insoluble, so thorny, so gnarled, that I can't make any sense out of it. Am I the only person that feels that way? Or we have common ground? Me, Lord, it's me. 
My problem is so acute, I cannot feel another person's need as badly as I feel my own. And therefore, I don't want anybody else's relief as badly as I want my own. But nevertheless, whatever our problem is, Jesus saw it coming and knew what he was going to do from the beginning. None of our problems confuse God. None of them throw him into a tizzy. He doesn't sit there and scratch his head and say, what in the world am I going to do with this one? This one is so hopeless, so, so many alternatives, so many things can happen. It could affect so many other people. And in fact, that's the truth. Nothing that the Lord does to us affects nobody else, ever. What he does, one of the things I like here, is he takes what we bring him. I love this scripture that he said to Moses. Remember that when, you know, when Moses was trying to talk his way out of it? How am I going to do all this? How am I supposed to go to the king of Egypt? How am I supposed to handle a problem of this magnitude when I go back there and, and uh, stand for you in front of Pharaoh? What am I to take with me? And God says, what is that you have in your hand? Remember? All he had was a stick. It was enough. And the bread and the fish were enough. And whatever we bring to the Lord is enough. I think about a couple other episodes in the Bible that what would happen if a person felt like that um, Jesus was stumped by the the lack of uh, material, the lack of of raw material, the lack of resources. I thought about, for example, uh, when they didn't have enough money to pay the temple tax. Do you remember that one? Remember what Jesus told them to do? He told them exactly what, of course, exactly what the disciples expected to hear. He, He said, go fishing. What, and, and make, catch a lot of fish and sell the fish? No. You will catch a fish that has the temple tax in its mouth, the exact amount. Imagine that. Imagine then saying, where's my fishing pole? As opposed to like, I think Jesus has finally, um, I, think, I think the pressure is getting to him. <laughs> you have to remember, because it's still... <laughs> The disciples still, over and over and over again, misunderstood who Jesus was. The disciples could have, in this circumstance, I would have thought, would have said, Philip, what are we going to do with these people? And my answer would have been, what do you mean, what am I going to do? Make some food. I've seen you made water out of wine, you make people stand up, you do all these miracles. Isn't it amazing to you that not at one point did they say, Jesus, this is a great place for a miracle. Why don't you go ahead and do that? Never said it. They never even brought it up. It didn't seem to be something they even pondered. Why not? Why not a miracle? Why not somebody, they, they just said they followed him because they'd seen miracles just like the day before. They saw him making blind men see and lame people walk. They followed him, and already they're, like, they're thinking about, we're stumped. Nothing can solve this problem. Everything is too much for God. What's that in your hand? We all have something that we bring to the table, probably modest, something we certainly wouldn't think could overturn the world or could drive back the powers of Satan, but in God's hand it can. What can we bring to him and give to him that we can lay in front of him and say, take this and use it. I give this to you. In your hands, we are more than conquerors. Jesus' response is a challenge to his disciples, to the people on the hillside, and to people in Arnold, Maryland, 2000 and, 
I guess it wouldn't be 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years later, we can watch what he does and learn about who he is. This is him revealing to himself what kind of a God he is. Now, I can decide for myself, that's a decision that's given to me. There's, there's a lot of theological back and forth on this, and then sometimes it gets people to get to the point where they can hardly speak to one another. But my theology is, I can decide for myself who he will be for me. He is going to be my Lord. He is going to be an advisor. He is going to be a role model. He is going to be a thorn in my side. What is he going to be for me? But I can decide that. But none of that changes who he is. He is still the Lord over the whole universe. Whether I follow him or not, whether I obey him or not, whether I praise him or not, he's still the Lord of everything. His sovereignty is not eroded, corroded, or driven back by my obedience or disobedience. He wants my obedience, but as I've said so many times, his plans are never thwarted by any of the action of any of, the, of, any of us. He can get past us. I should ask him, you tell me who you are. Reveal yourself to me. Let me know who you are that I may love you more. Let me praise you for the right things. Let me understand what your attributes are so that I can give you the proper praise and glory and so that I can describe you properly to other people. So we're dealing with either my understanding versus his self-definition as, as revealed in Scripture by actions that were testified to by witnesses. So his response is a sign. And it points towards something we're going to be hearing in a couple of uh, the next few weeks, which are what uh, are known as Jesus' I am statements. Now, at this point, we don't want to go into what those statements are. We don't need, we'll be talking about those. It's the I am part I want to focus on for the moment. We remember those two words, don't we, from the Old Testament. Who used them? God. I know, I, I know, I know you all know this. <laughs> God. God used this about himself. God was the only God who could say this statement. This is the only, state, uh, the only God about whom that statement is true. Every other God is false. This is the only God who can say, I am, I exist, I live. That made it who he is. And that set him apart from all the other false gods. And Jesus is saying this about himself. And it drove the Pharisees crazy to find out that somebody would dare to say this. In fact, he not only said it, but he used the, uh, the, um, uh, the language that he used was intended to emphasize that it was not an accident and that it was just not him using a figure of speech. He meant to be identified as God by saying these things. Very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Referring back to this episode. This is in a couple of, couple of verses. Do not work for food that spoils. Here's the, the transition. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Pointing towards the time when, again... Don't worry about what you're going to eat and drink. Don't worry about your, all these other things. You're worry, worry, worry. I know what you need. Not a far, uh, sparrow falls that your father doesn't see it. 
this is hard for the, well, that's another sermon. Never mind. <laughs> I'm often running. Who does Jesus say that he is? I and the Father are one. It's really basically saying I am, but we have a compound subject. I and the Father are one, the one who came down from heaven. There are still people who say Jesus never in the Bible says that he's the Son of God. There are still people, you know, how could you read the Bible and come up with a statement like that? They've been told that by somebody, but I still, I still hear this now, that Jesus never says that in the Bible. He never comes right out and says so. He couldn't be more clear than he is in the book of John. I and the Father are one. Where's the ambiguity there? We are dealing with the Son of God, or God the Son. Now, for us, dealing with God requires, by definition, by our nature, us seeing him from our human perspective, because that's who we are. We're just people, we live our lives a particular way, and these are the experiences that we have, and we see God as a human being. We might take him and magnify him in some fashion. This comes actually... um, If we go back into our past, our way of thinking goes back to the Greeks. And the Greek way of thinking about things was, if you were going to describe the attributes of God or a God as you took were anything, everything, there was a perfect version of it. Somewhere there was a perfect tree. Somewhere there was a perfect cloud. And somewhere the God would be the perfect sentient being. And all you do is you take every human attribute you can think of that's good, and you just magnify it to the limit that the human mind can grasp. Great goodness, great generosity, great kindness, great love. You just build it up until you get all of these things. But, of course, the limits are how far can our mind go towards understanding the things of God. We're limited. And dealing with the infinite is just simply our minds can't can't do it. And we begin, by definition, by our natures, to just think there are things that are just beyond God's ability to do. It's a dangerous trap to fall into. In God's hands, everything is useful for his purpose. Now we're told when we go to him, we pray with right motives, we pray according to the Spirit. Part of what we do in our prayer lives is it builds upon this process that I was talking about at the outset, It's a process of getting to know him better because we understand as we go on and as we get closer to God, as we worship him and praise him and live with him and allow him to be about his work within our hearts, as he continues to sanctify us and we know him better, we understand his nature better. We understand his motives better. We understand his plan better. We understand him better, and it changes how we pray. The more we know, the more we have an idea of what his will is and the more we can pray according to his will. Expectant prayer. I've told this story, I think, before. I I lose track of what I've said to whom. But it deals with a a parish priest in uh, Italy. And there was a drought. There's a rural village, and there was a drought. And it was getting to be a real problem. And if things didn't change pretty soon, they were going to have a, a bad season. And that made for a very bad year. And so the priest told him, I want you to pray that it will rain within a week. And the next Sunday, it hadn't rained. They all came back into church, and the priest got mad at him. He says, I don't understand you. Where are your umbrellas? 
You prayed for rain, but you're not really expecting any. We pray for things all the time and say, maybe God will answer this, maybe he won't. What is the power in our prayers? What do we expect from Jesus rather than limiting him and thinking, this is not something he's going to do. This is too much. It's beyond his ability. It's beyond his caring. It's beyond his concern. Maybe he just doesn't want this from me. Whatever. We talk ourselves out of an answer so often before we've even said amen. I can hear the voice in the back of my head contradicting the prayer that's coming out of my mouth. He's not going to, he's not going to, you're wasting your time. God's not like this. He's not that generous. He doesn't work miracles anymore. We've heard that, right? He doesn't work miracles anymore. God's not like that. Don't make God into who you want him to be. Let him tell us who he is. I can't come up with how good God is on my own. I'm not capable of inventing a God as good as God is. But it does take a lifetime of bending to him and surrendering to him to let him describe to us and tell us and reveal to him who he is. He is marvelous. Who do you say that I am? Who Jesus is for us shapes our behavior in every, in every day, every, in every way. Not to, it sounds cliched, but it does. If Jesus is Lord, you behave differently than if he isn't. A person who has Jesus as Lord behaves differently than somebody who thinks he's just a great guy who lived 2,000 years ago. It also expect, uh, shapes our expectations of, of him. And part of our self-examination, which I think we all should be, you know, should be pretty heavily involved in as Christians, how do our expectations of Jesus affect the way we live our lives? Do we have to do things for, for ourselves? Do we have to look out for number one? Are we on our own? Do we just have to do things and God becomes our plan B? Do we rely upon our own strategies, lean upon our own understandings, uh, develop and produce our own security, and just let God be the icing on the cake, or is God the foundation? It makes a difference how we live our lives where we put him. And they produce the visible signs, the fruits of the Spirit, of faith in us. We do tend to rely on what we've seen God do. It's human nature, but he is capable of surprise. He has surprised me over and over and over again. When I was out of work for a year, the, what I had done for the, the years before that is I was a consultant and I prayed for more contracts. He didn't give me more contracts. He gave me a job after a year. Starting a new job at the age of 60, which meant I wouldn't be there long enough to get a pension. I wouldn't be long enough. You know, you know all this, I'm starting a job at 60. I was the oldest rookie in the place by 15 years at least trying to learn the ropes at 60 years old. My friends are all retired. I'm just starting. But that was his answer. If I had relying on what he had already done for me, I wouldn't have even looked. It wasn't until I said, Lord, what have I not thought of that I began to hear different answers and I went and found this, this job. Forming our own images and expectations of God's actions Again, based on past experience, what will he do? Telling God what answer, like I was doing, telling God what answer we want, rather than letting God tell us what answer he has for us. When we do this, there's no room for surprise. The whole sense of wonder that God has for us, we sort of turn our backs on that. If, if we just uh, give God a list and say, you know, fill, fill this list and I'll be happy. 
Um, because we already know from Jesus, he'll tell us, he'll answer and do things for us more than we can ever ask or think. Let him do that. The disconnect is because we really can't help but think of God in human terms. We try to let God be God and to describe himself to us, to explain himself to us, to reveal himself to us as he draws himself near to us. If we let him, uh, he will help us to see this. He understands what our limitations are. He's spoken words that can be understood. They are hard teachings, but the Holy Spirit is there to help us to understand them. Even his disciples did this by saying, what are we going to do with a couple of bread and fish? We can't feed 5,000 people with this. No, you can't. But God can. They need to understand, as do we, that the things of God are spiritually discerned. His ways are not our ways. Here's a question that came to me in the middle of the night. If, if I were to tell someone they could have a life like mine, a person who's been a Christian for a number of years, would they want it? Would they look at the life that they see in me, the attitude that they see in me, the spirit that they see in me, and say, how do I get that? That guy's got something. I don't know how else to get it. I don't recognize it. It's more than I've ever tried to achieve. Would they want it? Jesus, in showing his generosity, showing his power, giving us reason to depend upon him, to rely upon him, and to trust in him, do we live our lives that way? Is this the God who provides? Do we trust him as the God who gives us, uh, who gives us what we, he knows we need? Is this the guy who fills our every desire? Or do we live our lives as though we're on our own and we, it's just a struggle until we finally run out of gas? Would anyone want to seek Jesus based on what they see in me or in church? Um... As I, one of the things I'm working on, God tells us that friendship with the world is enmity towards God. I've been giving this a lot of thought because me and, the, me and the world are on pretty good terms. And I've been friends with the world for a long time, and I've wanted friendship with the world for a long time. I've wanted its praise. I've feared its judgments. And I've allowed it to entertain me. I heard somebody say one time, you watch and bring into your home on TV people you would not let watch your children. They, you would not welcome them into your house if they knocked on your front door, but you bring them into the house all the time on your TV. I do this. There are some TV shows that's been hard for me to give up. One of them is Monty Python. I love Monty Python in a way that is probably unhealthy. But... They do not love me. They do not love me, and they do not love Christians, and they have said so. Not just in the movie about the, you know, and I laugh. There are some scenes in um, Life of Brian that just, I, I can't, I have to turn the TV off. I just can't breathe for how hard I'm laughing at it. Even the disrespect that they're showing for my faith. But one of the things that I remember is, all of these members of Monty Python, actually the same thing happened to John Lennon. They went to church when they were young. They went to a church where at some point you have to say to yourself, why in the world would anybody trouble to come here every Sunday? Why would anyone give their lives to this? What is in this for me? What, what is it about just sitting here and having somebody drone like I'm doing 
for a long period of time, what would make them want to do this? Why would anyone give their lives to a person, and this is all the more that they do for you, that no excitement, no life, no, en- no energy, no nothing? Why would, what is it that would make you give their lives to that? And they just basically said, I don't get it. Um, Monty Python made fun at one time at the, of a uh, church service, and they had the guy reading from, like, um, I don't know, Chronicles or something like that, about a, a man, you know, and they made fun of him in um, Life of Brian, you know, in those days, a, a man shall lose his hammer. Stuff, stuff, and they're like, this is how it sounds to them, because these things are spiritually discerned. Would a person want to know Jesus based on what they see when they're with me and when they're among us? Can we stir up the hunger, or do we just make people, what's all the fuss about? How could there be, uh, you know, there's so many people in this country that are concerned or call themselves Christians, given what I see the results being? This is a valid area of inquiry for all of us, because we are supposed to be salt and light. And by virtue of being salt and light, we are supposed to help people to understand who Jesus is, to want more of him, and to show him the way. So today... What are you praying for now? Probably a number of things. But my guess is there's something for most of us that sort of floats to the top as the thing that we want more now than than anything. What is it? And what do you envision God's answer being? What do you think God is thinking when he hears us pray? What are we picturing him the results are going to be? Do we have the image firmly in our mind? Are we coming to him with a specific request that then says it has to be fulfilled in such and such a way. Do we have an idea what God is going to do? Or do you sense a call to leave your loaves and fishes in God's hands? Yeah, we have needs. Of course we have needs. Specific needs. Sometimes very specific needs. And yet, I think what Jesus is telling us to do through this is Just leave it in his hands. He can do more with what you give him, including yourself, than you can even imagine. It could look very different from what you picture, very different from the avenue that you think he's going to show you. But that's okay. That's what it should be. Pray for what you want, but ask God to shape what you want. One of the things that I think about, this is basically the closing thought, is we say that God will... um, will provide for our needs. But I think one of the things he also does is he, he uh, redoes for us what our needs are. Our needs change when we become Christians. The things that we truly need, that we understand that we need, they change. We have the assurance of God's nature, whatever we say. We know who God is, a loving God, a kind God, a generous God, a benevolent God, a wise God who knows what he's doing, and he's up to big things. And keep in mind, as hard as it is for us to to believe this sometimes, all of God's responses are positive responses. They are all in service to his kingdom, which can be a hard thing for us to hear sometimes, because sometimes we think that God's kingdom purposes and ours, they don't always seem to dovetail. They might involve a sacrifice on our part or a loss on our part, or a struggle on our part that we would rather do without. But as Jesus said 
to Peter, and as he's saying to us, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. And Jesus then says, feed my sheep. Jesus is calling us to love one another, to love him and to love one another. Again, back to the, what's the most, what's the most important commandment? Love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You do this, you'll be taking care of everything else. Obedience is central to our relationship with God. So we begin to let him be who he is and go where he tells us to go. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love him, follow him, to learn from him, to let him lead us and change our lives. We are his disciples and he is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.